Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 411. So we've entered the second week of the three weeks, which is this unique period, and in it is contained actually the deepest secrets about life's vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life, meaning the joys and the pains and suffering, which is the essence of the waves and the cycles that we go through in life. So we'll begin with discussing that. But as always, this program is dedicated in merit of Baruch bin Yamin ben Menuchalena and Miriam Baschaya Sara Altois, Yukusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basli Bafarkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todes ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altois. If you'd like to dedicate a program, and it's a great way to honor someone, a loved one, birthday, a graduation, or lahavdil, yibod l'chaim l'chaim, a yartzeit, excellent way to connect this class, this program, to the thousands of people it reaches in honor of anyone. Just go to chassidusapply.com and there you can dedicate. Or you can write to us in the forum there, which is also an opportunity, besides writing something to dedicate, you can also submit any question you wish, completely anonymously. While we're doing housekeeping, You'll also find chassidusapply.com, a wide array of resources, all Hasidic resources applying chassidus to practical life, making it personally, emotionally, and psychologically relevant, which is the essence of what Torah is. Torah Malash and Hira, Torah is meant to be a directive and guide. But sometimes we need the translation. We need to spell it out. And that's the whole point of chassidus applied. With that said, let me begin with a housekeeping as well. Someone writes, I'm a middle-aged man, a deep thinker. I have many questions in Ashkofa. I see some of the same or similar questions in your weekly videos, but I often don't have time to listen to the entire hour or until my question is answered. Is there an index transcript of all the questions that were submitted? This way, I would scroll down until I find something that I'm interested in and then find an answer. Thank you. So, in addition to this individual, let me say this to everyone. Absolutely. First of all, all the videos, especially on YouTube, on chassidusapply.com, are timestamped, which means they're indexed by topic. And when you click at the end of the topic, there's a number, there's a timestamp, which takes you immediately a link straight to that place. So you can jump straight to the topic you're interested in. Secondly, if you go into the search screen, chassidusapply.com, you can search by topic, by different, uh, different words and subjects, to find what you're exactly looking for. Because indeed, there are already 410 episodes. We're talking about nine years of doing this program. Yes, who would believe? And um, so we've covered many, many different topics you can imagine. Okay, with that said, let's go back to the topic I began speaking about, which is the three weeks, which leads into the nine days. So even though on one hand, the first reaction we have, the knee-jerk reaction, is that this is a sad time. And indeed it is. It's the saddest time of the Jewish calendar. As the Mishnah in Tainus spells out, the five tragic events that happened on the 17th of Tammuz, that's the beginning, the first bookmark of the Bein Amtsarim, of the dire straits of the three weeks. And then the five tragic events that happened in the other bookmark, which is Tishabov, the ninth of Av, exactly three weeks apart. And of course, above all, the destruction of the Beis Amikdash. But other events happened prior to that and post that. 
And therefore, these days are marked as sad days, days of grieving, days of mourning. We don't make weddings, we don't listen to music, we don't do anything of pleasure that you can avoid. Obviously, we survive and we live, but it's considered to be somber days, respecting and honoring these tragic events. But as we'll see, a number of questions that came in, a very simple question is this, don't we count the tragic events with joy? So where's the, where do we draw the line? What are the things we can do with joy? What don't we do? And why, don't, why do we grieve? Maybe the best way to grieve is to overcome it by bringing out great joyous activities. So we'll speak about that as well. Since it's also the week of Pasha's Matis Masse, which is the, the last Pasha, the last two Pashas, but to get, it's combined together in the book of Bamidbar, we'll also discuss that and its relevance as well as other topics, some summer-related topics, some universal and timeless topics, as always, try to create a diversity of different issues that are, that are plaguing or challenging or, or one, we wonder about. And I thank you for all of that because it's you that generate these questions. My role is to try to, to uh, referee, to gather them together and provide the best possible answer we can find in in the Rabbeim's Maimorim and the Sichas and the Rebbe's letters and different Yechidus and, and any type of directives that we have gathered that we're able to gather. And I always welcome, if anybody has something to add, something you may know, a note from the Rebbe or an answer or a story or a Sicha or anything that addresses these topics or even your own opinion, I would really love to hear from you. So please submit that again. You go to chassidahsupply.com. There's an anonymous forum. You could leave your name. You could leave your email, but you don't have to. And it's completely untraceable. So nothing is, uh, everything is confidential. And, um, we'll be, and, and, and we don't even know who it is as well, and this is, which is our preference. Obviously, there are topics that sometimes you want to follow up. You want someone to call you or contact you, or you want to contact us. So then, of course, we need your contact information. Okay. So let's begin with the three weeks, and then we'll go to the Matis Masse. If we believe that everything Hashem does is for the good, why do we mourn during the three weeks and nine days? Famous uh, expression from the Tzemach Tzedek, the Rebbe cites often, good, good, think good and it will be good. But even further in the Gemara, it says, Gamzu Teva, everything the Ebesha does is for good. He does for good. So why do we indeed mourn? To read a little more detail this question. Obviously, if Hashem allowed the destruction of the, of the Beis Amigdash, of the Holy Temple, it is a good thing. Probably the reason we had to go through the past 2,000 years without a Beis Amigdash is so we are forced to gather a deeper strength within ourselves, which would make us better and stronger people so we can be ready for the ultimate redemption with Mashiach. So why are we sad? We should be happy because Hashem is doing this for our benefit. In the following up, another question in the same vein, wouldn't it, be more, wouldn't it make more sense to increase in joy during these days to break through and counteract the negative events? Okay. So it's a very good question, actually, a very obvious question. But remember, as I said at the outset, this isn't just commemorative. It's not just remembering a sad event that happened. 
Because to answer a question with a question, why are we still grieving almost 2,000 years? Even when we sit shiva, Rahman al-Utzlan, when you sit and grieve and mourn over the loss of a loved one, the halacha is seven days, not more, not less. Seven days. And you're not supposed to over-grieve. That doesn't mean you don't remain sad. doesn't mean that you don't remember. But grieving and mourning, like Tisha we actually sit on low chairs. The lights are lowered. So the answer is because life and the Torah is aligned to life is cycles. And to not respect the cycles of life, whether the ups and downs, is not respecting our own very lives. Mourning and grieving is not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of resignation, of giving up. It's a sign of honoring with strength a sad event. The way we were created by God is that we, have, we smile when we're happy and we cry when we're sad. That's not a bad thing. That's an actual, natural, healthy reaction to something that's sad. Now, is there a deeper good in it? Absolutely. But that doesn't take away from the nature of a human being. So for a person to say, I have such complete faith, and even though my father passed away, and I say that because my father did pass away, so I can say that, or some other tragedy happened, but I have such complete faith, everything is for the good, I don't grieve, I don't cry, I'm going right back, business as usual. That's... As the, as the Shulchan Aruch says, that's cruel. That's Achzadiyaz. That's insensitive. Because you're insensitive to the reality that there was something that happened. A body and soul separated from each other. And that's not the way it was meant to be. It's actually an aberration. From a point of view of Torah, the soul and body should have been together forever. When you're attached to the source of life, then you're an extension and you channel that life. It was only due to the Chetet Sadas which created that first dissonance, that first disconnect between human consciousness and divine consciousness that therefore was a result was death. But that's why when, when the future comes, Mashiach comes, we'll just go back to the way it was meant to be, it's, even though it seems miraculous to us, but it's actually just the way it was always meant to be. Why would a body and a soul have to separate? Why would spirit and matter have to be disconnected and severed? So when it does happen, it's sad. Not just for people who are weak, who can't deal with the tragedy, so therefore they cry. For the greatest people, we mourn and we grieve. And that's an honoring and respecting that part of the cycle of life. But the cycle doesn't end there. And we know that. And that's why we don't over-grieve. We know that within even the negative lies something powerful and positive. And then when it comes to the month of other, as the, if you want, the other side of the spectrum, Ta'av, like the Gemara says, Mishanichnas, Kishem Shem Mishanichnas of Mamaitim Besimcha, Kach Mishanichnas Odem Mamarbim Besimcha. Just as we diminish in joy in the month of Av, we increase in joy in the month of Adah because Adah represents the, the upper hand, end of the cycle, the highs, when there's joy, reveal joy, when we have things that we can celebrate in an open way. So the recognition of both these are both the recognition of truth. It would be like someone, someone saying, okay, I, I'm taking a piece of food, healthy food, and then someone eats, God forbid, something that's toxic, something poisonous. So you say, it's all good, it's all for the good. No, you have to recognize the path to go on and the path not to go on. You have to recognize when there's a storm coming. You have to recognize when you have to move forward. You have to recognize when you have to take it slow and be more, more humble and more restrained. Restraint and forward thrust are not a contradiction. Look at a cardiogram, the cycle of life. It's not a flat line, God forbid. There's ups and downs, a perfect 
wave, perfect waves. Contraction, expansion. Exhale, inhale. This is the cycle of life. So the three weeks, and particularly the nine days, represent that part of the cycle. Just as we see the ebb and flow of everything in life goes through a pulsating motion, look at the moon. And the moon is a very good example because the moon is the perfect. It waxes and wanes. The sun is more or less consistent light. The moon is all about change. And that's why the Jewish people are compared to the moon. And we're similar to the moon. And we count by the moon. And we sanctify the moon. The moon waxes, grows. Now the moon itself, we always know is a complete moon in its reflection of the sun. But in the angle to the earth, and the whole point of the moon and the sun is So the way we see it, the way we perceive it, there's the full moon, there's the new moon, where it seems completely disappears, only to be reborn again. And then there's the first and third quarter. So the moon is a perfect example of the cycles of life. So the full moon represents fullness, and that's why all the holidays, Sukkot, Pesach, Purim, are in the full moon. And on the other hand, the new moon represents the beginning birth, like Rosh Hashanah. Tisha B'Av is on the ninth day of the month. Chamisha Asr B'Av, the 15th of the month, is the full moon above, which we'll talk about after Tisha B'Av that week. That Kaimah Musa, full moon, especially after the Yerida, after the descent of Tisha B'Av, which is 10 minus 1, the 10 spheres that lacking Malchus, that dignity, the Aliyah of Malchus of Levona, it's on the 15th of the moon, and that's why That's one of the, it's considered how there were no holidays by, in Israel as, as, as uh, the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur for this reason. So it's honoring this element. The Beis Hamikdash was not just a building, as we'll soon discuss in another, another question. It represented the connection, exactly that, the unity, the seamlessness, the opposite of the dissonance created by the Chetet Sadas, Chetet Sadas separated. The Beis Hamikdash, starting with the Mishkan, which came after Matan Teda, represented the unification and corrected the mistake and the dissonance and the severing of matter and spirit that happened after the Chetet Sadas. That's when we read in the Medish, the famous Medish, that the Shechina, Ika Shechina B'Tachtenu Mesa, the Shechina, the Divine Presence, was here on earth, which simply means in simple terms, that existence was aligned with its purpose in a revealed conscious way. The first sin, what is sin? Aveda comes from the word displacement, a form of dissonance. So the divine presence was concealed, and then it got, got continued to be concealed generation after generation. Avram Avinu reversed the process. We learned this in the Maimar Basilagani from the Medrash Shem Shirim Naba, Basilagani Lignuni, Ikashchina Betachtenim Haisa. And by Matan Teda, the toxins of Etzadas seized, and we created a similar scenario as it was pre Chet Etzadas. The Mishkan embodied that. Obviously, the Chet Egel, the sin of the golden calf, reenacted, and Chazuruzemosa, the toxins returned. But the Mishkan was a tikkun for the Chet Egel, according to one opinion, but either way, it's, it's a representative of what? Of bringing the Shekhinah back to earth. So the Beis Amidus represents this unity. And when, unfortunately, the world is not aligned, a Beis Amidus cannot stand. And that's what we remember and honor. And that's why the Gemara Yerushalmi says that every generation that does not rebuild the Beis Amidus is as if it destroyed it. Why, why are we at fault? They had sinas chinam, baseless uh, hatred. 
That's why we are considered as if we destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. The answer is because the Beis HaMikdash is not just a building that was destroyed then, it's the presence of the divine in every generation that does not manifest the divine through our unity and through our baseless avas chinam, baseless love, it's we continue that, that dissonance, we continue that separation. So we are responsible. So you see, much more the three weeks and the nine days represent actually our lives. So honoring this, so someone to say there's no dissonance, there's no disconnect, everything is great. That's denial, it's, it's not even true. That's not honoring. So the mere fact that we say, you know, something happened, someone passed away, we cry over it. The shechina was concealed, we cry over that. That's a cry from strength, not from weakness. At the same time, it's not an end in itself. The whole purpose is, why are you crying? Just to cry? You cry? We're doing something about it. We recognize it. When you, denial means there's no problem, so you're not going to do anything about it. Here, we're acting on it, and as we act on it, what, what do we do as we act? We correct our ways. That's why in the three weeks, what's the job for us to do? Is to strengthen our Avis Yisrael, our love for each other, which is Besides, I mean, not besides, it's connected. Because love for each other creates unity among us, and therefore unity with us and the Shekhinah and the Divine. God blesses, when we're together, blesses us when we're together. It reunites a fragmented universe. It, re- it reconnects after dissonance. It re- attachment after there was a disconnect. A reconciliation after there was betrayal. That's what we are doing. And we do it through learning Torah, learning Torah, giving tzedakah, charity, learning the laws of the Beis Hamikdash. because when you learn that, it's as if you build a Beis Hamikdash. It's not, again, not just technical laws. It's about understanding and understanding what this Beis Hamikdash, which was a model for us, v'shachanti b'seicham. The Beis Hamikdash was created in the same template, with the same template as the human being was created, which the cosmos themselves were created. So we're connecting to all of that and everything else that we add, enjoy that we're allowed to add, halachically, that all counteracts the negative forces. So how do we deal with the three weeks? In two ways. We recognize the problem, we don't deny it, and we go with the flow of that problem, meaning we have to respect it. We don't make weddings and we don't have musical occasions and the pleasures that usually we can indulge in. And it's interesting, right, smack in the summer in this part, in this hemisphere, when usually most pleasure is done in summer months are for fun. So we are reminded of that. But at the same time, it's not an end in itself. It's all you read the Tzedekhaliyah. All that remembering the sad is in order to bring the greater joy. So we do whatever we can to reveal that joy the way the Torah prescribes we should do. So therefore you have the balance of both elements. So absolutely, everything God does is for the good. Ultimately, the destruction of the second temple leads to the building of the third temple, which will be a permanent one. What we weren't able to achieve back then, now through the thousands of years of hard work, we achieve from the bottom up and we refine the world like never before, that this time, when the divine presence will be here, it will be here forever, permanently. So that's the first duty that say the Chaliyah, that everything is for the good. But at the same time, we still have to remember and recognize just like a good swimmer, even though there's a storm raging and he knows the storm will pass, but while the storm is there, you have to go with the flow. You have to humbly acknowledge and not try to over, be more smarter, more powerful than the challenges around us. We ride on them. 
And that's the key thing to remember, those two points. The Munkat Shad Micha Salazar says, Mishanichnas of Marbim Mamayatim Besimcha, that when Av enters the sadness of us, Mamayatim, we diminish the sadness of Av, Besimcha with joy. But of course, he doesn't mean joy that is prohibited, God forbid. He's talking about a joy, whatever joy we can do, like the joy, let's say, on Shabbos, the Semach Sadiq writes, the three Shabbosim of the three weeks are a counter force because then you're not supposed to grieve. So in the three weeks, we're given three Shabbosim that are essentially like an oasis. Think of it like an island of joy amidst the sadness. But even though the sadness is sadness, it also has joy within it. But in the weekday, we have to recognize the more the sad part of it. And Shabbos, we celebrate. And even in the weekdays, that through Teirah and Mitzvahs, we, we, we increase in joy because Teirah and Mitzvahs is something that's a mitzvah all the time to do. And that does bring joy. Even while one is mourning and grieving. Okay. With that, let me go to another question here. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I don't feel comfortable asking this to my teacher, so I'm asking it here. I know there's a custom to learn about the base of during the three weeks so that we will yearn for it to be rebuilt. And I should add, I'm adding, as I just mentioned, not just to yearn, but when we learn it, when you learn something in Teda, and Teda is the blueprint of existence, that actually is a way of rebuilding it. So besides familiarizing ourselves with it and aligning ourselves to the Beis Amigdash, which, as I said, is the same template and is a model for us and a template for us of how to be connected to the divine, that the divine rests among us, that in addition to that, the actual learning about it is a way of bringing it down. First you learn about it, first you read it in the blueprint, and then it's rebuilt. To be honest, I don't really get, I'm reading, I'm continuing the question. I don't, I, I don't, uh, to be honest, I don't really get what's so special about the building. It's not like there aren't any other beautiful buildings and palaces and other impressive structures today that seem to be much more beautiful than the Beis Amidash, as it's described in the Torah and the Rambam. Can you share and explain what was so special about the Beis Amidash as far as its physical appearance is concerned, or was it just spiritual and you'd have to be there to get it kind of thing. So I believe I explained it and preempted this question, but I'll just sum it up again. Yes, the basic meaning is besides the fact that it was a beautiful building physically, but that's only an expression of its spiritual beauty. And what is its spiritual beauty is in a few elements. First of all, v'shachanti b'seichem. That does not exist in any building on earth. Today we have a migdash ma'at, which means a mini-sanctuary is a shul, as it says in Yecheskel, the Ebershter said, build me a Migdash Ma'at, the Eyelehem Migdash Ma'at, that I will have a place to rest, I will be like in, this, in these shuls. But the real ultimate shul, the ultimate is the Beis HaMikdash, the Mishkan. Why? Because V'shachanti B'Seichem, the exact specifications were not man-made. God told Moshe Rabbeinu exactly how to build the Mishkan and then later the Beis HaMikdash, as it was built by Shlema Melech and then later as well, a Mashiach, rebuilding the third Beis Amigdash and all the different opinions exactly how that will take place. So we're talking about a divine structure, a physical structure, by, by, with materials, physical materials, but by divine command and divine architect, architecture in order to be the per- perfect conducive channel where you have a shachanti b'seicham, that I shall dwell and rest among you, not in the building, among you. So the building becomes a channel an interface between God and existence, between God and the people. And indeed, the very structure, as I mentioned before, 
is built exactly in the same way the Seder Ishtalshalus, in the same way a human being, a microcosm. There are three sections, Resh, Guf, Regel. A head, the Kedush Kedoshim is like the head. That's where the urn is. The Ark, the Holy Ark, the Torah, the Luchas, the Torah are in there. The second is Kedush, like the torso, like the body, Guf. And there you have mainly three things, right, left, and center. So you have the Mizbeach, the Menorah, and the Shulchan. And then you have the outer section, like the legs, Regel, which is the outer part, where the Mizbeach HaChitzin was there, Mizbeach HaKarbonus, the altar of offerings, that was built on the outside, and that was like what connects the Mishkan to the world around it. So there are entire books that actually talk about the parallels. There's a sefer called Teres Ha'ela from the Ramah, a Moshe Israelish Ramah, the map of the, the covering of the Shulchan Aruch, as he's called, the commentary on the Beis Yosef. So he writes a sefer, Teres Ha'ela, where he goes through literally every aspect of the Beis Hamidash and what it is in spiritual levels. You also have from the Shalah, and from the Rabbeinu Bechaye, and others that talk about the parallels. The Rebbe has in his Joshimus, he cites it in a few places, quite elaborately. And of course, Chassidus, many places that talk about how each component of the Beis Amigdash, both the Urias, the walls themselves, and the Kalim, and the, and the containers, all represent different parts of who we are. So it's not just another building, it's actually a template, a model, that, that we can replicate and we identify with and allows the divine to rest among us, the Seicham. Which only adds to appreciating why we study these laws. Okay, the next question. What is the source and reason that we don't go swimming during the nine days? There's a Gemara in Tainus, I think, that says, when the month of Av enters, we diminish in public joyous gatherings to mourn for the Churban Beis Amigdash. Yes, we, I cited that earlier. But I don't think it says that we can't swim or play sports and exercise. Would it make, wouldn't it make, would it make more logical sense overall to take the approach of adding joyous events in the month of Av because we have a precept that says, Simcha Peretz Geder, Simcha breaks through all boundaries. Maybe joy can break through the boundaries that are holding back Mashiach. Okay, so I answered definitely the second half of the question, but let's get to swimming. Well, swimming is in Shulchan Aruch specifically states swimming, bathing um, is prohibited because they're considered pleasure. There is also another element. Swimming is also considered somewhat of a dangerous activity. It's not dangerous to go swimming, but it, it, it poses a particular danger. So on the nine days, we stay away from anything that has any extra possible danger. Now, explaining this, it's not because of a bad omen, it's not because of an ayin hara, it's not because of a curse, God forbid. It's, again, respecting the cycles of life. When you come and see someone who's sad, the first thing you have to be is sensitive to that person. You don't say, let's start dancing, let's start singing. Even though dancing and singing has healing, is a healing agent and has the power to heal, but everything in its time, there's ace lift case, there's a time to cry, and there's an ace... Lirka is a time to dance. And understanding the cycles is the key. The same thing is when educating children or, or talk speaking to each other, communicating. It's the sensitivity to the situation. So even though there is merit to certain things, everything has its time and place. You have to know, you have to know how to pace things. Just like a good teacher may have brilliant ideas to share, 
But the key to sharing properly is spoon-feeding it. And I mean that in a positive way. Restraint, giving the right examples, going at the pace of the student. Even the great Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem is mafsik ben pasha la pasha, he stops and pauses. So Moshe can absorb. The key to any type of relationship and to any type, and anything in life that's healthy, not just relationship between one another, even relationship with yourself, is knowing how to ride the waves, how to navigate life. So to say, because Simcha does everything and does pay together, that's why 24-7 a person has to dance and sing. That's not, there's also Gili Birada, there's a Simcha that can also be concealed within. As I said before, it's not sadness as an end to sadness, it's a sensitivity to that part of the cycle. And that will lead to the next part of the cycle. So when you're speaking to someone, or even to yourself, you have to recognize at times and respect your own moods. Obviously, if it's a very bad or sour mood, you try to fight it, you try to minimize it. But if it's a serious situation, a person has a good reason to be sad, you have to respect it. With the goal of knowing we'll ride through it, and the only way out is through, and we will get through it and then grow to the next stage of the cycle. In the words of the Rebbe Rashab, when the Vienna, Viennese first built in Vienna the first uh, Ferris wheel, so news came back to Lubavitch about it, and the Rebbe Rashab gave a lesson from it. He told somebody who was going in hard times economically, he said to him, life is like a Ferris wheel. That when you're on top, know that it's going to turn. It's a turning wheel. It'll ultimately come down. And when it's down, no, it's going to go up. Life is a, is, a, is a wheel, a wheel that turns. That's the cycles of life, and we respect it. This is one of the reasons that when, by a chuppah, the high point of a couple's life, of a family marrying off a fa- uh, the children, what greater joy. We have to break a cup right there at the height. They just, said, they just, they just uh, got, got married. You could break the cup at the end of the wedding, if you wish, to remember your shalayim to remember the destruction. No, at the height of the moment. And you cry mazel tov right after you break the cup. Seems like a contradiction of terms. But it's not. Because at the moment of the height of joy, we never forget that the world is not yet a complete world. There's still broken people. There's still broken hearts. There's still a broken base. I mean, there's, there's a dissonance between the divine and existence. Even though the couple represent the shechina, shriya b'neim, ish v'isha, yudke. Of the, of the yud of the esh, of the fire of the man, the hay of the woman, of isha, the fire of the woman. So shechina shri but at the same time, the world is not yet complete. Mashiach is not here. So we remember that. That's a sensitivity. So then, on the other extreme, God forbid, when people sit, sit and grieve or mourn over the loss of someone, it's also not 100%. You also remember good things. We say, remember Yerushalayim, that you're not alone in your grief. Others are with you. And it will ultimately, just like Yerushalayim, will be rebuilt, so will you. So it's a cycle, and it's always remembering both sides of the spectrum, both sides of the coin. It's a turning wheel. Life is never, don't think of it ever as disjointed, fragmented pieces. It's part of a narrative. And the narrative continues. And that's why the Gemara Taka says, Kashem, just as you diminish in joy in and of, you increase in joy in other. Why would we mix the two? Because it's one connection. It's one flow. And just as other is joy, also of is ultimately going to lead to joy. And it's one flow, one story. You also find Moshe Rabbeinu, it says. He was misakin. He decreed two things. Seven days of mishta, which is the Sheva Brachas after a wedding, seven days of celebration, and seven days of mourning. Why would you say it in the same breath? 
It's two separate things. It's the two different extremes in life because, again, it's part of one larger cycle. The actual swimming, as I said, pleasure, going back to that, and as well as um, extra things that are more dangerous, like people are more careful traveling. Anything that, because it's a time where you have to be more humble, lay low, as they say. And it's not because of any, it is a negative energy, and it is a different, there's a dissonance between divine and existence that, exi- that, that, that we have at this t- period of time. So in a time like that, you have to be humble. Just like after the Chet Egel, the second Luchas were given in quiet, in silence, on Yom Kippur. The first Luchas, the first tablets were given with whole fanfare, or fireworks, or Matan Teda. The second one is the humble humility. You lay low, you don't have to indulge in extra pleasure, you don't have to leave a Yenika Sachit which is in a sense like negative forces saying, oh look, person is just, they're living in a world of Golas, where the divine is disconnected and they're dancing and singing. There are times that we have to be careful in how we dance and sing. And again, not because there isn't deeper joy in it, but because we're, we're respecting the cycles of life. And when you respect the cycle properly, that actually prepares you to be able to dance and, and celebrate in the proper way, in the fullest way, as the nine days conclude. Now, we hope Mashiach will come before then so we can celebrate. Tisha B'Av will be, it says in the Medrash, the greatest holiday. Regardless, following that comes the 15th of all, the great Yom Tif, then the month of El, then Tishrei, all built from the month of Av, which is... And we know that Menachem of, Menachem of, the consolation of, of the comforting of, of and Aryeh, the, the mazel of, of, which of course this Shabbos, we, we just benched the month of Av yesterday. So Aryeh is a Rosh Tevis, is an acronym, Ari Leo, the lion, is an acronym for El Rosh Hashanah Yema Kippurim Rabba. So from what is built those powerful days, all built from of the Aryeh, because the lion that roared on a negative side, Nebuchadnezzar, and destroyed the lion in the month of the lion, as the Yalkutshmeni says, is Almanas, on condition that the lion, God, will roar. The Mashiach comes with the Besamid Shashlishi, which is called the lion. So you see, it's all about a cycle and ultimately the transformation, not the not the dispelling, not the elimination of the negative, but the transformation of it, revealing its true nature because we respected the cycles and we rode the waves properly. I heard that the Rebbe was against commemorating Yom HaShoah, it's called Holocaust Day, during the months of Nisan, and that he preferred that it would be, during, that it would be done during the weeks, during the three weeks or nine days. Is that correct? And if yes, why? If not, why didn't the Rebbe commemorate Yom HaShoah? So I do know that the Rebbe in general was not, I mean, when you say the Rebbe was opposed, the Rebbe never would stop someone from doing something and tell someone, don't, you don't do it. But the Rebbe was respecting another thing. Yom HaShoah is not just remembering the death of the six, six million. It's remembering their lives and what they represented. Just as there was a suggestion, leave an empty seat at the Seder, for the, one, for the six million, the Rebbe said, don't leave it empty. Fill it with someone. Bring a Jew that would not have been at the Seder. Because what would those six million Jews be doing now if they were here alive? They would be doing Seders. They'd be living up to their, 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 their mission of fulfilling Torah mitzvahs. So it's not just leaving a void and remembering the void, but doing something to fill the void. 
And the same idea, the Yom HaShoah, not just remembering a negative thing, but do something in a positive way. Nisan is a time of joy, you don't say Tachnun and so on. So that clearly the Rebbe was opposed to establishing it then. I did not hear that he had said three weeks or nine days, but in concept, in general, there's a Sikha Purim Tavshin Tezayin where the Rebbe speaks why today we don't have holidays. Like, you know, why was Purim, the la- uh, Hanukkah actually, the last holiday that was established? We had many times that we've been saved afterwards. So why don't we make holidays? Why don't we remember? And just like there's the destruction of the temple, why don't we remember the six million? And the Rebbe explains because those events, this is based on the Torah Eir from the Alter Rebbe, that those events were not just events that happened then. Tishabov is also Yom HaShoah in a way. Because why is it possible there was a Holocaust? It was because there was a destruction of the temple and because there was a disconnect between the divine and existence. Just like everything rooted in the Simpson in the divine concealment. So everything originates. So when Tishabov is not just remembering then, every tragedy, what individually or collectively, is a Tishabov. And the same thing with Purim Machanaka. Every salvation is another form of that because they're not just events of the past, they're happening right now. And the same thing with Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Chalder Vader, in every generation we relive it because every form of redemption is another way of leaving the constricts, the constrictions and the, and the constraints of Mitzrayim, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So we're talking here about those events actually represent events today. We don't need to make a new holiday. I discussed this, I believe, in the past in some different episodes of my life. But the point being, now if somebody has some sources about the Rebbe with the nine days and the three weeks, we almost show, please share it, and I will share it as well. Here's another question. There's a kind of an underground minig, quote-unquote minig, to watch Holocaust movies on Tishabov or the nine days. Is that a, ba- a good or, ba- or bad custom? Is that appropriate? And in general, is it okay to watch movies that illustrate important lessons? Well, <laughs> you say mini quote-unquote. Uh, there's no mini Yisrael like this. Let's make that clear. I mean, I, I'm, I'm smiling simply because I understand where you're coming from. But the point being is, there may be people who do it. I don't know if they do it as a mitzvah or they do it because um, it's a day where people, I guess, lay low and they're, I'm not sure exactly. I don't know if it's... A, that by watching a Holocaust movie that makes you sadder, read Kinnus. And if you need a translator, read a translation. It'll make you sad enough. You don't need to watch any movie for that. So I don't think that one, one can categorize this as a way of, uh, of honoring Tishabov. Um, if you were in a higher level, I would say it's definitely not a non- way of honoring it because movie, watching movies is not exactly a Torah way of doing things. The movie is ultimately a depiction, maybe even fiction. And not to say movies aren't brilliant and they have great art, but it's a piece of art and it's not real. Let's, let's be honest, it's a movie. Um, and now, of course, there are reels of actual tragic images of the Holocaust. But that's not the Torah Siddisha way that I'm familiar with, that that's the way we honor it. We honor it by introspection, as the Rambam says, with the soul search. We say the prayers, the Echa, and then the Kinnus by day, and we remember that wasn't just a destruction back then, but every form of destruction today, every sadness, every tragedy, every loss, is a recreation of a disconnection between God and existence. And you have to find in your own personal self a way of reconnecting. That's the way you honor Tisha B'Av. 
Everything else is extracurricular and sometimes even, I would say, even usr, prohibited. I'm not going to get into whether a movie is, is, is prohibited or not that you ask your local rabbi or mashpia, but it's definitely not in the category of divrei teira. It's uh, even dvarim betelim or worse, depending also, even depending, I'm not, again, not going to categorize that, but it's not, I would not in any way uh, condone or sanction that. Um, I'm not here to tell people what to do. Everybody can do whatever they see fit. But if you're asking the standard of Teirach Siddhis, if you ask the Rebbe, no, that's not the way to honor Tishabov. And on the contrary, Tishabov is about yourself and about the world and about the Jewish people, what we've gone through. In general, can you learn lessons? You can learn lessons from everything. Teirach people have always learned lessons even from the numbers on a train, even from things that just are seemingly, you walk in the street and you see certain random, nothing is random, everything is Ashraqa Pratis. But that doesn't mean we have to go watch a movie to learn lessons. You can learn lessons from the events that you encounter on your own that God leads you to. Watching movies goes into the category, if you read Tanya Periches, which actually I'm up to now teaching in the, the weekly, it's a good time to plug that. Every, every Machai Shab is 10 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time. I do a class, a half-hour class on Tanya. And I'm up to Chapter 8. You can also follow that. Chassidus Applied. There's a whole section called Tanya Applied. And there he talks explicitly what it is. Besides Dvarim Betelim, which is not every moment you can learn Teda, not learn Teda, that already is a prohibition. Watching movies in that ca- is in that category. Uh, but again, you have to, this is something I would take up with your mashpia, everybody on their level, um, where they stand. Because I don't want to come out here with, it's not the purpose and the platform of my life, the, the rulings and sharing what, what things what we learn from chassidus and teda. And movies are not on that standard, that's for sure. But on a personal note, every person has to make decisions, like what you read. Reading a newspaper is also not in that, not in the category of learning teda. But and that, at the same time, you have to figure out where you stand and where you're up to and what you're shaykh to. Each person on their level. So now, after the fact, there are many people who did things that were inappropriate and then they learned lessons from it by all means. That's after the fact, but that's not a to go and do something and say, oh, I'm going to learn lessons from it. If you want to learn lessons, there are plenty of lessons out there. Nature itself is the best teacher. You have to just look at from my flesh I behold God. And from other things, many things out there that can teach you about godliness and about lessons in life. And anything that comes your way is always a lesson in itself, as the Baal Shem Tov says. Everything a person sees or hears is a lesson in Avedis Hashem and you're serving God and you're in fulfilling your mission in this world. Okay. With that, let us move to Pashas Matis Masi, which is always read during the three weeks. The, the Shalosh says that, that, that uh, there's hints to the three weeks in these Pashas, and this has been discussed. I've discussed it, and the Rebbe has the discussions on this. In the, I've quoted the Rebbe's Sichus on this topic quite a few times. So here someone writes, I regularly read the Parsha of the Week with Rashi and other commentaries, but, often, but I often have trouble finding relevance to what the Torah is saying. Sometimes I'm even confused about what the Torah means, and at other times things seem to be very puzzling and confusing as to how the Torah would say something like that. How can I find more meaning in the Parsha, and how do I reconcile my notions of fairness and justice to what sometimes feels like my sense is different to the Torah's? And there's a follow-up to that question, which I'll read afterwards. First, let me respond to this in general. It's a great question. Teda's Meloshen Hera. 
This means that Teda comes from the word directive, guidance, instruction, instruction to life. So it's not just a history book, it's not just a book of inspiration, a book of laws. It's a book, a blueprint that God's blueprint of existence, a blueprint of you and I. And every character, in every individual, in every episode, in every narrative, in every detail, is the story of your life today. Now, to appreciate that, you need to learn usually chassidus. You can sometimes discover it easily on your own. Like, look at the story of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. We all know we have good and evil within us, and we have a choice to make. And there are many other stories that are pretty obvious what their lessons are to us, but there are many that are not. That's why we need to see the Torah as medaberes belyenim. The Torah speaks about spiritual matters, and it alludes to things down below, the events that happened actually happened at the Torah manifests. But everything from the story from the beginning of Bereshis, Yitzchis Mitzrayim, the travel through the wilderness, the traveling through the wilderness, which is part of the Masse, the 42 journeys, are all part of our journeys in life. As the Baal Shem Tov says, that those 42 journeys play themselves out in our lives. We will go through 42 journeys in our own lives. In one place, he says, we go through those 42 journeys every day. I actually did a number of years ago a series, which we want to turn into a book, 42 Journeys of Your Life, and I went through each one of the journeys to explain how it's relevant to the journeys in our life. And it's fascinating to see the, the, the chronology of it. It literally goes with the life cycles from birth to death. You could check it out at MeaningfulLife.com. Just look, 42 Journeys. It's seven weeks. Each week I did six journeys. Seven times six, 42 journeys. So, and same thing with all other stories. Now, sometimes you can find it easily. Like I said, some, like I said sometimes not so easy. That's why it's good to talk to someone who's either a Siddhis, a Mashpia, someone who has some experience. There are many classes today online, including my own, many others, that take a Pasha, take a story from the Pasha, and apply it. So I would recommend, to, your, to answer your question, to check that out. Each Pasha, look online, and you'll find, once you get the gist of it, you get like a formula, then you, start, you, can, you can start applying it yourself and say, I read a verse. I don't see the relevance to my life. So ask yourself, why does this verse matter? What can you learn from it? And if you can't figure it out yourself, ask someone. And that's how we learn. Now, the things that seem to go counter to some of our feelings really means that we have to learn the Torah better. Remember, Torah is Torah Hashem. It's Torah Chaim and Torah Chesed. It's a Torah of life and a Torah of kindness and love. The whole Torah was not given except to do shalom, give shalom, bring peace in this world. Its paths are all pleasant. And all its ways are good, are peaceful. If you don't see it, it means that we don't understand what it says in the Torah. And imreiku mikemu means if something's lacking, it's because it's lacking in us. And again, to find the answer, either you have to read or ask somebody who may be more knowledgeable. But always give Torah the benefit of the doubt. You'd be surprised to find that it will satisfy and will live up to the highest standards. Because at the end of the day, who created life? The giver of life has the highest standards of what the quality of life should be like. And God forbid anything in Torah should be anything negative in any other way. Which leads me to the next question, a follow-up to another. The Torah talks a lot about killing and punishment, including in this week's Pasha, wars and revenge, anger and judgment. What does it mean, and how are we to interpret that in our daily lives? Again, a very good question. I believe I addressed it last week or the last few weeks. 
I have entire st- uh, two articles that I wrote about religious violence. If you go online, meaningfullife.com, again, you can find answers to these questions. But briefly, since we know the principle of Teda, as I said, is all about bringing peace, and it's all coming from the divine, it's not a book of people's rage and anger, and God forbid to apply that to God. So you have to understand it in a spiritual context, which then manifests in a physical context. And the spiritual context is God does not get angry. There's a dissonance that can be created. When we don't align ourselves with God, as I mentioned, it's not about reward and punishment. It's about cause and effect. If you disconnect and behave in a way that's unhealthy, there's going to be consequences. So when the Torah talks about what you're calling anger, judgment, war, revenge, it's all about those consequences. Midian, for example, in this week's Pasha, so Midian, they go to, there's a, basically a war of vengeance against them and what they did to the Jewish people. The question is why? Since when is vengeance a good thing? But then you go and learn Hachalsu from the Alter Rebbe and Lukut Tere and the Hachalsu from the Rebbe Rashab, famous Hachalsu Ranat, you see Midian comes from the word modern, Machlekes. They represented divisiveness. They represented conflict, discord. And you go to war against discord. It's not vengeance against an individual. It's vengeance against an archetype. It's vengeance against a force that is destructive in life. And yes, there's a physical manifestation of that as well, just like Mitzrayim represents constraints, inhibitions, fears, insecurities. And Yitzhiz Mitzrayim represents transcendence. It also manifested in a way in a physical land that was called Mitzrayim and a people that behaved that way. Ervasarets, a decadent nation, a decadent people behaving by their own their own decadent morals. But it starts with a, a uh, archetype, with a model, with, a, with a, uh, a personality. And that's Amolek. Amolek is gematriosophic doubt, and Amolek is about apathy and indifference and coldness. And yes, viciousness as well, lack of compassion. We all have Amolek within us. We all have Midian within us. We all have Mitzrayim within us. These are just parts of how to understand the relevance of everything in Teda, and most importantly, to understand the real story, the real narrative behind it all, and its lessons to us in our lives. Okay. So to move on, let's move to the next question. What should I do about my husband refusing to wear tzitzis in the hot summer months? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, my husband refuses to wear tzitzis in the summer because he says it's too hot and an extra garment makes him feel sweaty and disgusting. How is it possible for someone should feel disgusting while doing a mitzvah? He claims there is no Torah requirement to wear tzitzis. He said the only requirement is when someone is wearing a four-cornered garment, the garment must have tzitzis. But nowhere does it say, thou shalt wear a four-cornered garment. He says if I keep nagging him about it, he will hang a pair of tzitzis on the living room wall like the tzaddikim did, like the tzaddikim did. So who's correct here, me or him? Well, yes. Um, you may be correct. And first of all, to get into the technical details, there may be some points he's making that's correct, but the point here is that mitzvahs are done not because you're comfortable or not comfortable. A mitzvah is a mitzvah. The custom today is to wear tzitzis even though it's correct to say that it's the mitzvah technically is only when you have a four-cornered garment. But you see, many Yisrael's, you wear tzitzis. And it's also wearing tzitzis outside for the isim isim. And there, there's also customs to either see them or they should be under the, un- covered. 
Both have merit. The Rebbe once explained that at length. It's not relevant to our discussion here. And it's definitely also a chinuch for our children and in general to be a role model. Remember, the tzitzis remind us of the Ebeshter, of Tayag Mitzvahs. You'll remember God. So there's more to it than just the technicality. But the question is not here right, right or wrong. You may be 100% right, but the question is whether you're getting through to your husband, whether by nagging him. You know, I'm only using that word because you used that word. By imposing yourself in that way, is it just going to alienate him and he's not going to respond well? So I would address this more in context of not what's right or wrong, but how to communicate it. Because it's not always what you say, it's how you say it. So I think the way to go about it is much more through a pleasant manner because the bottom line is right now he's uncomfortable. And yes, that may be small-minded of him and it may be neglecting the bigger picture. You know, just because you're uncomfortable, there's a lot of things. On Shabbos, you're comfortable uh, getting on a telephone or watching, or watching something. We don't do it. You know, and there's times when uh, on Tisha B'Av we're uncomfortable fasting. And you have to be fast. But if someone's not in that place yet, for whatever reason, immaturity, or they're just into their own indulgences, or again, like he is, he's sweaty, then I would look for ways to try to communicate it to him, but in ways that he could hear it. So I wouldn't tackle it head on. I would do more roundabout ways. You know, maybe in other areas of your life, being very pleasant and very giving and kind. So he's softer and more open to you. He may respond better. I don't have a, a magic formula here, but I do know communication is all about a setting, about the tone, the vibe. It's not just what you want, what you don't want. And ultimately, at the end of the day, and this is not justifying his behavior, there's some battles you have to choose. You have to choose your battle. Some things, between, it's between him and God. Just as if you didn't want to wear something because you were very hot. You know, the woman goes the other way around. I'm not saying you're in that place. And should your husband be telling you, hey, this is what you should wear. It's not sneezdik. You're not dressing sneezdik, even though it's the summer. And you'll say, I'm not comfortable, or other reasons. Um, so the, same th- the approach would be the same. It's all about how you communicate it. And at the end of the day, you try your best. But I would not become, don't let this become a source of agony and aggravation because it'll just create more tension in other areas of life. So you try your best and then see. If you can't really succeed, then I would leave it go. Not again, not because it's not an issue, but because simply there may be bigger things to tackle. And I would focus on those bigger things. Also, having conversations about things without attacking personally. No, it's not saying, I want to talk to you about the tzitzis or about this thing. is always more, more successful. No, but just talk about standards, if you, especially if you have children. And you could bring up scenarios that are not about him and he may get the message. You know, let's say your child comes back from school or from home, from camp, or also has a, wants to do some things that they saw other friends do that is lower than the standard you usually have. How would you address something like that? Maybe talk to your spouse about that in that fashion. You know, sometimes talking about a third party is easier. And that may, you know, let's say it's the same, it will come up situations like this. Someone goes to another house and they have a lower standard. And I say lowest in that I'm not here to criticize. I'm just saying compared to where you're at, you're not comfortable with what is done in another home, how they, what they eat or how they behave or how they talk or how they dress or what they watch, etc. So I think it's all about really communication and a sensitive one. At the end of the day, marriage is the most important thing is the shalom bias, is to make sure there's a partnership here. 
And partnership is not built on purely details, whether it's tzitzis or other things, as important as they may be. It's built on the full relationship. And then, hopefully, your own higher standard will be a living example, which is my final point. Lift up your standards in a certain way. I'm not saying you're at fault, God forbid, not that. But people learn. People learn from things. When they see people they love behave in a way that's more refined, generally speaking, that brings out more refinement. When you become more critical, so it may rub the person the wrong way, even though what you're saying is completely legitimate. So I would do that as well, say an extra capital tilim on behalf of your husband. And maybe when you light candles Friday night, think about it as well. Um, again, not to try to change him, but try to elevate his spirituality and his spiritual sensitivities is the key to it all. Okay. Next question. How far must we go in thinking good so that it will be good? Okay, let's read this question more. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I have a question about the concept of amuna and the saying introduced by the Tzamech Tzedek, think good and it will be good, which we referred to before as well, and that's why very fitting in these three weeks to talk about this. My wife has a medical problem which is causing fertility issues and making it difficult to have a normal pregnancy. She came home from a doctor appointment yesterday and was upset because the doctor said there is a 75% chance you won't be able to get pregnant. Having studied in Lubavitch Yeshiva, I immediately applied what I've been taught, and I smiled and told my wife, this is great news because it means it's not hopeless, and you have a 25% chance of a healthy, normal pregnancy. Yeah, just as an aside, I'll add this. The Rebbe said something similar when he had the heart attack in 1977. So the doctor said to him, you know, that if you don't take care of yourself, Rabbi Schneerson, or however he referred to the Rebbe, he says you have a certain percent chance that it will reoccur. I think he said 70%, 60%, or higher, I don't remember. And he said, did you hear what I said? And the Rebbe responded, yes, you said that 40% chance that, it, that, that, that it, it will not reoccur. Instead of hearing that 60% it will reoccur, 40% that it won't reoccur. In other words, focusing on the positive. So I'm affirming your, what, you, uh, your, what you learned from it. Continuing the letter. Okay. I tried to explain to my wife how we have to look at the positive and it can change our perspective and outlook. My question is this, does this work in the simple manner that I explained to my wife, or is there more we have to do to express our amuna, our faith, in order to draw down the positive energy that the Tzemach Tzedek promised us is available? Of course, all the davening and hope in Hashem's blessing is in addition to any therapies and treatments the doctors prescribe. We are not sitting back and doing nothing and expecting a miracle. We are doing everything that science and medicine today says can help, and it's our hope that with Hashem's blessing, that the right doctor at the right time will prescribe the right treatment that will work and we will have a healthy Jewish child that we can educate and teach the important things the Rebbe taught us that Hashem wants us to do, especially in increasing in goodness and kindness so that Mashiach can come right away with no further obstacles. Okay, thank you for the, that question. So firstly, let me just share my heart goes out to you and your wife. And I think most important here is obviously Hashem is, is the final say, but... You're both partners in this. And I just will add that in addition to what you told your wife, which is very good, that positive attitude, because it also, often in marriages, can create a strain because sometimes the spouse feels inadequate and the husband makes her feel that way and say, you know, it's not due to me, it's due to you, without necessarily saying those words. But often a spouse can make you feel 
you know, okay, something's wrong with you. You can't have a child. Um, so the fact that you're supporting her and the fact that you're also focusing on the positive is excellent. The more you could add to that, because this isn't just a physical thing. It's also emotional, and especially for a woman, for a man as well, but especially for a woman, a child is like part of her being. Though I'm not a woman, but you can understand that's how God created her. For a man as well, that's why children are such a great blessing. So I think the, the more emotional support, the more emotional affirmation, and I'm in it with you, and we're together, and we'll do everything we can do with Hashem's help, is critical. I see you're doing that already, and I commend you. I'm just encouraging the more the better. As far as the actual question of what, how far we go, we were told, God blessings everything and what you do, you have to make a keli. What's a keli? A keli means going to the best doctors, going to the best rabbis, going to the best professionals, getting everything possible, not leaving any stone unturned, while at the same time knowing that Hashem works through that. That God gives permission for a doctor to heal, not because the doctor is a healer, because God is a healer. God is the healer, but he allows healing, and he wants healing to go through human hands, and human ingenuity, and human science, and, the, and technologies, and so on. So there's no question we have to do. The Tzemach Tzedek said, he didn't say go to sleep. Obviously, do whatever you can. If it needs a doctor, you need a, a different interventions. So I think it goes hand in hand, and it's not a contradiction, because part of our Hashem works. The good that you want from Hashem is going to come through the different shluchim Hashem has put in this earth, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a rabbi, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a friend, whether it's even a person, a stranger. So it's a combination of both and always making sure you cover all the bases. Just as Yaakov Avinu, when he prepared for Esau, he davened, he prayed, he prepared a bribe to appease him and he prepared for war. Thank God he only needed two out of the three. But preparation, we do everything we can. And that's part of it. It's not a contradiction to do something b'derechateva that may help the situation is not a contradiction to the faith we have and the betochen we have in Tragut v'zangut. May Hashem bless you and everyone that needs have all in a healthy, good way with the least amount of aggravation. Okay. There's a few other questions. Um, let me cover... Let me do one follow-up. So last week, somebody had written about addiction to TV. So here's a follow-up. Dear Rabbi, in response to your class, how should we act, react to astronomical discoveries? That was last week's program. 410, episode 410. May I give some suggestions for the woman who said she's addicted to television? And here's what this individual writes. I'm a Balash Shuba since 1997. I was raised reformed with no limits on how much, on how, how much, or what we ate. On Sundays, we would go to a non-kosher Italian restaurant and eat appetizers, garlic bread, and dinner, and then have, a, then have a whole pizza for dessert. When my friends and I would go to the city to a kosher restaurant, I was so ignorant of kashrus, I would ask for butter in a fleshic restaurant. Okay. Years ago, when we were learning Tanya, my shliach taught us how to eat. He said that before we eat, we should prepare ourselves. First, we should not eat or drink in the morning until after davening and learning chitas. At any meal, before we eat, we should learn Tater for some time, at least five minutes, preferably more. We should then know why we're going to eat. For example, to be healthy, to serve God, to serve God with the energy from the food, 
to elevate my part of the world or to redeem the sparks of godliness in the food and return them to Hashem by using everything in my domain to serve God. Just eating because of hunger was not a reason to eat. We could take as much food as, as, as we thought we needed, but not take double second portions. Food that we really liked and wanted, we shouldn't eat to do the mitzvah of sanctifying ourselves in what is permitted to us. We should only eat for pleasure on Shabbos, to sanctify the Shabbos, so during the week, no candy, potato chips, ice cream, popcorn, cake, soda, hot chocolate, drinking liquor for pleasure, etc. Unless we were at a simcha. And of course, we shouldn't eat too much, like a glutton, or eat enthusiastically. After each bite, we should consider if we really needed another bite, and if we didn't, we should stop. During the first year of eating with kavana like this, my cholesterol dropped 30 points, and I stopped getting cavities, which must have reduced my dentist's income. I want to suggest that the woman who is addicted to TV, to TV, or one who has any so-called addiction, follow these steps before turning on the TV or partaking of what she craves. Think of the TV as food. Write down all of these steps and make sure you do all of them before turning on the TV. Also, some hints that I learned when I quit smoking a pack a day, the woman should find herself a buddy or two who she can call whenever she wants to watch TV, who will help her not to do so. I will give my email address, and Rabbi Jacobson, you're welcome to give it to this woman, and I'll be her buddy, because I stopped watching TV in 1996. The woman should do some exercise outside of the house as a replacement for watching TV, and even going for a walk. When craving TV, she should put a little pepper on her tongue, and the sharp sensation will distract her till she comes to her senses and can walk away and do something else. And after two weeks of this, she should resolve to never watch TV again and throw it out. She and her family will then learn more and find other new ways to enjoy each other's company. She will n- never regret it. Thank you. Okay, a letter, a heartfelt letter from one to another. If you do want to have this uh, buddy, I'd be happy to share her email address. Just let us know, and we'll do that. And I have really no comment. I'm actually quite touched that somebody went out of their way, besides listening, but responding and suggestions. You could, you know, the suggestions speak for themselves. Everybody can choose to accept or reject, or maybe have other ideas. But to go out your way and make an effort to care is very commendable, and I am very touched by that. And I'm touched to be able to be a conduit, somewhat of a platform, to provide this service. Okay. We'll conclude with a chassidus question, and it goes like this. Can we create peace between the divine and animal souls, or are they in perpetual battle? Shalom ubracha, Rabbi Jacobson. First of all, you should be gesund and stark to carry on your holy work. Second, thank you for establishing this forum to submit an anonymous question. It's an awesome gift, as there is little as great as the resolution of doubt. I really liked your presentation of inner peace as a complementary relation between our two souls. Okay, let me first make reference to this individual is referring to. Besides this program, I do quite a few other programs every week, as you may know. I actually do, I believe, 12, 14 programs a week. And one of them is Wednesday night. It's called Wednesday Night Masterclass Live. And this past week, I did inner peace. Be- uh, uh, world peace begins with inner peace. So I spoke about how to find peace within yourself. So he's referring to, he says, I like your, I like your presentation of inner peace as a complementary relationship between our, our two souls. You can actually hear that class if you like to go to MeaningfulLife.com. Remember, we have two websites. MeaningfulLife.com is more universal and uh, broader. 
and this Chassidus applied a little more focused on Chassidus and the language of Chassidus. So you can see it there. So he writes like this. I think it can be developed. I think your, your presentation can be developed into a paradigm for transformation. In order to do so, a central piece begs to be spelled out, and that is the nature of the relationship between the animal and the godly soul. The Alter Rebbe described that relationship as a struggle, the outcome of which defines the very essence of the Bainini. Rabbi Jacobson discusses this oppositional relationship in complementary terms. Please explain this oppositional complementary dynamic. Thank you for providing the Bina of the Chachm of Chassidus so that we can integrate the Das to bring Mashiach. Well, uh, I'm, I appreciate your uh, um, equating me and the Alter Rebbe, but let's be honest, the Alter Rebbe is my teacher as he is yours, and I did not come, nor would I ever come to <laughs> present a different approach. I believe that the Alter Rebbe is talking about, yes, the battle, because at the end of the day, as he explains in chapter 9 and on, the, the, the the antithetical forces of the animal soul which resides in the, primarily in the emotions which are impulsive and driven by self-interest and the divine soul which resides primarily in the mind which is reflective and therefore counters the re- impulses of the, divine, the animal soul and it's focused on transcendence and serving the divine, ser- fulfilling its purpose and that is indeed the Benini, a perpetual battle. But both in Tanya, but especially in Maimorim of Kutayre'el, Kutayre'el, and later Chassidus, talks about Bechol We say every day, Love God with, with all your heart. But Levavcha is not Lipcha, not heart with one base, two base. B'shnei Yitzarecha, the Yitzatev and the Yitzahar. And it's not a contradiction, because initially it's a battle. But the goal is that the battle should be conquered. Like even in chapter 9, he talks about the Tzadik conquers the battle, and to the point that the divine soul transforms the animal soul. Now, even though we cannot do that on our own, a Benini, but the goal ultimately is to reach at least a taste of that, which means, as Chassidus puts it, to explain to the animal soul that it's also good for you, and you can understand rationally, and also feel in your interest, it's your self-interest, to experience something that's beyond your self-interest, to experience transcendence. And this is really a big part of Chassidus, is how we transform that, the divine the animal soul. So the ultimate goal is peace between Nefesh Elikis and Nefesh Abamis. Even though we have to know, like I spoke earlier about the, the cycles, we have to know there's also a stage where there's a real battle. The battle is every moment of our lives. Are you going to behave selfishly? Are you going to behave selflessly? But the ultimate goal is to transform and the, the divine soul in with, manifest within the body, Gufa Nefesh Abamis, and the animal soul to explain and transform it from within an ultimate total transformation, which leads me as a good segue into another class that I give every day in Ayin Bays. So there you can go again, AxidusApply.com, and AyinBays.com, you can find all the details. It's a daily live class, both on YouTube and on Zoom, that you can participate. Everybody's welcome. And we're actually discussing right now that point, how not just, not just dispelling, not just neutralizing the animal soul, not just nullifying it, but transforming it that it becomes one partner, one unit together with the divine soul. And indeed, it actually catapults even the divine soul to places that it can never reach on its own because the animal soul ultimately has a root and its hunger and thirst reaches a place what he calls helama'atzmi, the chorus concealment in the highest levels of the divine, even higher than the revelation of the divine soul. And ultimately, when Esau and Yaakov will come together, Mashiach's coming, is a symbol of that type of complete harmony. 
With that, we will conclude this, this um, episode 411 of My Life Chassidus Applied. And may indeed that happen. Not just eliminating or neutralizing or nullifying the negative days, but the negative will be transformed into positive. The animal soul and divine soul together. In these days, what more opportune time. And we should be zeched to that gula even before Rish and even before the end of Tammuz. And be zeched to gula mitis vashleim, and then we enter Tishabav, and it'll be the greatest holiday of all. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My life is applied. Be well, call to This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.